Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for Therapeutics Thursday's podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members to sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Rebecca Bartholomew, and I am a PGY2 ambulatory care and academia resident from Portland, Oregon, and I will be your host today for the ASHP Therapeutics Thursdays podcast. With me today is Dr. Hazel Thompson, who works at Concordia University and is interested in cardiology and caring for diverse patient populations. Thank you for joining us today, Hazel. Let's get started with today's topic, gender-affirming hormone therapy for gender-diverse patients. Before we talk about the medications and the therapies, Hazel, can you review some of the common terms used to describe gender non-conforming patients? Yeah, definitely. So thanks so much for having me. So this topic definitely has kind of like two sections, which you kind of talked about, maybe more of that non-form kind of educating our pharmacists and pharmacy technicians about how to interact with these patients appropriately and provide compassionate care. And then obviously the pharmacotherapy side of that. So yeah, so a couple definitions to maybe go through would first be the difference between gender and sex. So gender is one's internal sense of self. In comparison, sex is what is assigned at birth. So sex is dependent on, you know, your chromosomes or your external genitalia. Gender expression is how someone expresses their internal sense of self. So that would be through their voice, how they dress, if they wear makeup, clothing, thing like things like that. Sexual orientation is who someone is attracted to. Transgender is someone who identifies differently than their sex assigned at birth. Cisgender is someone whose identity is similar to their sex assigned at birth. So for example, I was born female, so my sex at birth was female, and I identify as female, so I would be considered cisgender. Gender dysphoria is that diagnostic code that's typically used for insurances or, you know, when you go to the doctor for someone who identifies different than their sex assigned at birth. So within that transgender umbrella, there's two different types of transgender patients. So first would be transgender male. So someone whose sex assigned at birth was female that now identifies as male. Sometimes in the literature, you see this listed as FTM and that stands for female to male. And then the other half is transgender women. So someone whose sex assigned at birth was male that now identifies as female. And again, in the literature, you may see this label as MTF, which stands for male to female. The last category would be non-binary or genderqueer. And this is a group of patients that kind of reject the groupings of gender. So they either may identify as both male and female or neither male nor female. The last definition I guess I'll throw out there is gender transition. And this is more describes the process that someone takes 
from when they identify as having gender dysphoria to making what they consider a complete transition into the gender that they identify as. Thank you so much for defining those terms for us, Hazel. And of course, it sounds like this is already a very complex group of definitions, and I am sure that there are tons of terms beyond this. But I think for today, these basic terms will be helpful for the discussion. So thank you. Perfect. Why do you think caring for this patient population and educating pharmacists about this population is so important? Yeah, definitely. So there's about 1.4 million adults in the United States that identify as transgender. So that breaks down to about 390 adults per 100,000. So that's quite a few people. And honestly, that's probably kind of lowballing it. We probably have more people that identify as transgender or having gender dysphoria that maybe aren't willing to market on a survey or something like that. So this number is continuously growing. So this patient population is a patient population that we will continue to serve as time goes on. So not only that, but also there are so many health disparities that this population encounters. So some of those health disparities would be things like less likely to have insurance or more chronic diseases. Transgender women are more likely, four times more likely to contract HIV. There's a seven times more likely to smoke cigarettes, two and a half times more likely to experience anxiety and depression substance abuse, alcohol abuse. So these are all health disparities that this population encounters. So you would be thinking like, oh man, we, they must follow up with their PCP a lot because of all of these you know, concerns and risks. But that's just not the case. There's been multiple surveys where transgender patients say that they either have experienced a negative encounter in the healthcare system or they completely avoid healthcare because of that fear and stigma. So pharmacy, I feel like our like little tag and our slogan is always, we're the healthcare provider that sees patients the most. So we should utilize that. We should totally hone that characteristic and create an environment that's really open to transgender populations or, you know, however someone identifies, making them feel comfortable to ask questions, making sure they're well-educated on their medications, and really encouraging that follow-up with providers when needed. So I think we, we really have a unique niche in interacting with patients so frequently. I 100% agree, and I think that that makes a lot of sense. You touched on this a little bit earlier, Hazel, but perhaps we can spend some time on it specifically. What are some of the non-pharmacological therapy options for gender non-conforming patients? Yeah, definitely. So there's, I mean, there's quite a few. So some of them are how they identify, which we've kind of talked about. So whether that's utilizing different pronouns and we would maybe societally typically see for someone. So whether that's gender neutral pronouns, so that would be things like they or them. There's also some more complicated gender neutral pronouns, they and zeer and here and here's. Those are maybe a little more clunky to fit into casual conversation if you're not used to using them. So asking someone what pronouns they prefer, preferred names. So sometimes someone may use a name that they prefer that may not be legally their name. So specifically like in a pharmacy, looking at an insurance card or a driver's license might not tell you 
how the patient identifies or what they prefer to be called. So those are always good things to kind of identify. But other things that patients do would be gender-affirming exterior. So things like makeup, voice training, clothing, those are all examples of someone expressing their gender. We also do have surgical options. So there's kind of two types of surgical options that a patient can undergo. So that would be like targeting the genitalia or targeting more of an appearance change. So something like a mastectomy, pectoral implants, voice surgery, hair reconstruction, liposuction. There's a ton of things that are being done to help someone get to the point that they feel comfortable and confident. And then there's also some psychotherapy options also. So whether that's individual, family, couple, group, you know, there's tons of support groups and different opportunities, whether that's in a hospital setting or in the community for support. Typically, we see about like 25% of patients that do transition-related surgeries and about roughly 50% that do some sort of hormone replacement therapy, which I know we're getting to later on. Thank you so much. So, so to check my understanding, not all gender non-conforming or transgender patients seek surgery. Am I understanding that correctly? Absolutely, 100%. So not everyone feels like they need surgery or maybe they can't afford surgery. So something of just expressing their gender, however that may be, might be, you know, quote unquote, the treatment that they choose. So that might not even be medication related either. Awesome. Thank you so much. So as I understand it, hormone therapy for gender non-conforming patients typically falls into three broad categories, pubertal suppression, masculinizing and feminizing therapies. Let's start with pubertal suppression or puberty suppression. What are the treatments for suppressing puberty? Yeah, definitely. So I will first start by saying I have done most of my research in adult patient populations, but I do know some about the adolescent changes and that pre-puberty category that you were kind of referring to. So a lot of times, we first encourage social transition. So social transition would be something like encouraging that child or adolescent to live the gender that they are now identifying. So that would be through, you know, telling people how they identify, going by their preferred name, maybe changing their gender expression. So really honing that gender. So it kind of helps test the person's resolve as well as test their support. Then the next step would be discussing with the patient and the family their physical transition goals. So usually puberty blocking and gender affirming hormone treatments are in pre-pubertal children with gender dysphoria is typically not indicated and not the route that we wanna go. It's usually not until an adolescent starts reaching puberty that we can consider giving some sort of medical treatment. But again, totally case by case, everyone's different. So if adolescents meet the criteria with a specialist, then they can start treatment to suppress that pubertal development. So clinicians can start pubertal hormone suppression after physical changes of puberty begin. So the medications that are used are gonadotropin-releasing hormone analogs. So that would be like gosterellin, buspirellin, triptorellin, 
are typically the agents. And how they work are their neurohormones that block the gonadotropin-releasing hormone receptor, blocking the release of follicle-stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone. Pretty much what they're doing is they're stopping puberty from progressing, is what we're thinking. So these medications are thought to have better psychological and physical outcomes. A lot of the benefits with this suppression of puberty is because it gives the individual more time to explore their options and live as the gender that they're choosing before making a decision that is fully or partially reversible. So this suppression of puberty is fully reversible, which is why we usually start with this. It also helps with physical outcomes. So it prevents irreversible development of undesirable secondary sex characteristics. So what that means is it helps with your body not progressing to a full male or full female figure, because obviously it's more complicated to have to kind of reverse that or undo that. So it helps kind of block that progression. And it also helps this, the child or adolescent with their well-being. So it helps with their psychological development. So figuring out who they are as a person. And obviously as an adolescent, I don't think anyone really knows who they are as a, as a person, but I can't imagine also battling this transgender identity. So there's there's tons of things that they that must be going on for them. So lots of struggles there. Thank you so much, Hazel, for that discussion on pubertal suppression. So moving into our adult patients then, what are the treatments for masculinizing therapies? Definitely. So then that moves, that kind of starts our progression into the sex hormone treatment. So a lot of times we're not thinking about using sex hormone treatment till about 16 years old. Again, definitely not a hard stop. Could be younger than that, depending on the adolescent or depending on the adult. But if we're thinking for transgender male, our goal is obviously to reduce the exogenous sex hormone levels and thus reduce the secondary sex characteristics of the individual's designated gender. So we're trying to reverse the things that have already started to happen. So a lot of times first, someone needs to establish what their physical transition goals are. So what they view as being a transgender male, where they want to get to. So the thing that we're typically using would be testosterone. So there's lots of different testosterone options that are available to masculinize a transgender male. So that would be either parenteral or transdermal preparations. And we have normal testosterone values or levels that we're trying to titrate these different medications in order to achieve. But again, if someone can reach their desired physical transition goals without having to you know, be on that, even within that range or at the higher end of that range, that's obviously ideal because of so many of the adverse effects that are associated with these therapies. So for parenteral testosterone options, we have testosterone enanthate or cypionate or undecanoate. So these are typically given like sub-Q or IM, and it ranges from, you know, every week to every 12 weeks. So there's a lot of perks to that, not having to, you know, worry about adherence and compliance. There's also definitely some cons with like 
peak and, you know, waxing and waning of testosterone levels. Like obviously at the end of 12 weeks, it's not going to be the same as, you know, right after someone received an injection. We also have transdermal testosterone options. So we have gels and patches. Obviously the perk with that is that, you know, it's not something that we're, it does have systemic absorption, but we're not giving it, you know, orally or through an injection. But the biggest con is obviously we don't want to, you know, give someone a hug and rub testosterone on them or, you know, have to wear multiple patches that can sometimes be an agent, you know, a limiting cause for someone to, to not use that particular agent. So that's pretty much what we have to for masculine, masculizing, masculinizing therapy. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> Thank you for that summary, uh, Hazel, about masculinizing therapies. What are some of the treatments for the other half of the coin, the feminizing therapies? Yeah. So feminizing therapies are a little bit more complicated, which I feel like we're like, yeah, we know. So estrogen alone is not sufficient in order to suppress testosterone levels. So a lot of times we have to have adjunctive medications such as, you know, androgen activities or gonadotropin releasing hormone agonists. So things like spironolactone. So spironolactone directly blocks androgens during their interaction with androgen receptors. Another medication that's similar to spironolactone would be cyproterone acetate. And this is a progestinol compound with anti-androgenic properties, but it's more widely used in Europe. The only reason I'm really talking about it is because it can be obtained on the internet. So those are two medications that are typically used along with estrogen. So then our estrogen therapies, we have oral estrogen, so like estradiol, transdermal estrogens like estrogen patches, and parenteral estrogens like estradiol-valerate or cypionate. So typically we're looking to kind of attack this from a couple of different angles. So whether that's estradiol plus spironolactone or estradiol-valerate plus cyproterone acetate, or potentially instead of spironolactone or cyproterone acetate, we could use a gonadotropin-releasing hormone agonist, which we talked about previously. So those are kind of the ways we approach that. And mainly we add this additional therapy in addition to estrogen so that we don't have to push estrogen doses to be so high because of the risk factors that we know from studying estrogen use in other diseases where high estrogen use has so many risk factors that we maybe don't want to mess with. Thank you for that summary, Hazel. You mentioned it a little bit earlier when you mentioned the internet, but can you speak more to how patients go about obtaining all of these therapies? Because I imagine it's all off-label, correct? Yeah, definitely. So this is continuing to move in the right direction as we have you know, more experience with gender dysphoria as a diagnosis and people receiving treatment for, you know, transgender, becoming a transgender man or female. So one of the biggest risk factors 
was patients obtaining either estrogen, testosterone, or other medications on the internet. That was something that was, you know, at one point, I remember seeing a survey that said like 50% of people receive hormone replacement therapy on the internet. I don't think that's the case anymore, or at least it's not that high. But, you know, it's obviously still out there. And a lot of it goes back to that stigma that patients feel when receiving healthcare. So seeing their PCP is something that's, you know, a traumatic experience. They don't want the front desk person to to say, oh, you're Tim Smith. And then you have to 15 times be like, no, I'm Tina Smith, you know, and get called a he, him, and all those things along the way. So a lot of times there's just so many issues with them receiving appropriate care that patients turn to things like receiving prescriptions on the internet, which we know if prescriptions aren't monitored and, you know, we're not drawing lab values and getting vitals, that's obviously really dangerous for patients if they're, you know, just dosing what willy-nilly whatever they feel like, that can be really detrimental to the patient's short-term and long-term health. For sure. And I'm glad to hear that it does seem to be headed in a more accessible direction, as you mentioned. So in addition to the hormone therapy, which is going to be centering around the gender dysphoria, what other types of primary care will gender nonconforming patients need? Yeah, definitely. So a lot of times there are quite a few categories, both in testosterone and in estrogen therapy for, you know, additional things that we're monitoring, mainly for like long-term management. So with testosterone, it would be things like, you know, they're at higher risk for liver dysfunction, coronary artery disease, cerebrovascular disease, hypertension. So a lot of that heart, heart health we're focusing on, but additionally, also monitoring for things like cancer. So just because someone is now, let's say, a transgender male doesn't necessarily mean they don't have female reproductive organs. So making sure we're continuing to assess and do those normal mammograms or breast exams that we would typically do. Additionally, things like osteoporosis screening is super important in someone who's receiving hormone therapy. A lot of times, specifically, if hormone therapy is stopped or they're non-compliant, or if the patient started with suppressing puberty at a young age in adolescence, we want to continue to monitor that risk for osteoporosis. And for females or for transgender females, more specifically would be things like monitoring for clots. So things like VTEs and PEs, you know, electrolyte abnormalities. Those are the things that we're typically focused on. But again, cancer screenings for any tissue or any reproductive organs that are still remaining is also important. Thank you for that summary. As we wind down on the heaviness of this topic and kind of the nitty gritty of the therapeutics, I am wondering what words of wisdom or patient case examples have you personally learned an important lesson from that you could share with our listeners? Definitely. I think I have like two examples, two little stories that are both super short. And one is an inpatient setting and one is an outpatient setting. So hopefully it will kind of hit with a, or resonate with a variety of listeners. So for 
the inpatient side, I was in a hospital setting and I was the clinical pharmacist on the floor and kind of just minding my own business, observing or monitoring my patients and overheard a nurse to nurse handoff that was occurring behind me. And one of the nurses said to the other, let's say the patient's name was Tim. They were like, you know, Tim, you have Tim in bed 32. You know, he, his chart says he's a male, but he's kind of, he kind of acts like a female and dresses like a female. You know, I don't really know. He's, he seems kind of weird. I just call him Tim and he always responds. And then maybe an outpatient example would be a patient, you know, one time a dad came to the window and the pharmacist brought the prescription over and said, you know, oh, I have an estrogen prescription for your son. The father corrected him and said, oh, it's actually for my daughter. And the pharmacist was like, no, it's, it's for your son, actually. It's for, you know, Tim Smith. And the, the dad kind of had to continue to correct him. And maybe the pharmacist just wasn't quite catching on and then said, you know, I'm not super familiar with estrogen therapy in males, but I trust that he's seen a specialist. So I'm sure that the dose is fine and safe for your son. I think both of these examples are super simple. They're just like teeny things. Nothing's crazy traumatic is happening in either of them, you know, or at least from an outside perspective, obviously. But they're just examples of times where we could just kind of take a step back and think and maybe be a little bit more compassionate. So in that inpatient setting, being compassionate towards the patient. I mean, when you're a transgender female on the sidewalk. I'm sure there are things that you experience and feel constantly, but then to also be in the hospital where you are, you know, the most vulnerable and probably feeling totally miserable and like your care and everything is in, are in these people's hands, that's a time to be, you know, next level compassionate. So making sure that that person feels super cared for and really heard and comfortable in their atmosphere or in the environment that you're creating. And then, I mean, that still applies in the outpatient setting, but I think that outpatient story just really shows the importance of taking that next step to making sure you know what resources to utilize to reference doses or to reach out to providers to ask questions just because this is a unique and you know upcoming thing and maybe we don't have a lot of time to look into stuff doesn't mean that this patients deserve to have that additional risk that they shouldn't be encountering. So just making sure that we're always being compassionate providers, I think is my biggest takeaway. But I think the next thing I would say is to just ask questions. Like no one expects you to know everyone's gender preference or their preferred name, but no one's going to be mad at you for asking what they prefer, what pronouns they prefer. And if you screw up, which everyone does, then you just apologize and continue on and try to be better the next time. No one's expecting perfection and no one's expecting you to be a transgender wizard. Thank you so much for those stories and words of wisdom, Hazel. I 100% agree with them. It sounds like in both of the stories you mentioned, confusion could have been avoided by simply asking, well, what is your name and preferred pronouns? Definitely. Yeah, completely agree. Just simple, simple questions to ask. 
What are some resources or guidelines that you would recommend pharmacists turn to in order to learn more? In your outpatient story, the pharmacist said, well, I don't know much about this. Where could they learn more about this? Yeah, definitely. So there is thankfully more and more literature and studies that are being done for this patient population. The one that I probably have used the most is the Endocrine Society Guidelines from 2017. That is in the Journal of of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism. That one is really nice because it has specific doses of medications and also like specific monitoring parameters, like the time and what should be monitored. Some other ones would be like the World Professional Association for Transgender Health Guidelines or the Center of Excellence for Transgender Health Guidelines. Those are kind of the three that I probably have utilized the most. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Hazel Thompson. Again, she is an assistant professor from Concordia University in Wisconsin, and her and I both thank our listeners today for joining us on this unique patient population that hopefully will continue to grow more in our knowledge base about. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources You can find member-exclusive offerings such as resources, centers, including those on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious diseases, and more, and hopefully soon a page on gender-affirming hormone therapy. Other offerings include the Credentialing and Privileging Resource Center, the Preceptor Toolkit, and forums such as the ASHP Section of Clinical Specialists and Scientists Connect Community where you can exchange ideas and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutic Thursdays and join us here every Thursday where we will be talking with ASHP member content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.